Mysteries to Die For is brought to you by Down and Out Books. This week's featured new release is Suicide Squeeze by me, T.G. Wolf. Diamond, one name for a woman with one purpose, or she was until she finished her to-do list. Now she's just one woman waiting for fate to do its worst. Just when she has her exit strategy figured out, fate throws her a curveball. Hannah Lang is the kind of woman men write bad checks for. She has a problem. Her man, Dr. Damon Martin, disappeared in the middle of an ordinary day. The police aren't concerned. Not yet. But Hannah knows better. A clandestine meeting leaves her with an address, a sealed envelope, and one last hope for help. When Diamond's marker is called in, she has to listen. It's just like fate to send her one problem she can't walk away from. Hannah's situation is virtually identical to her own with one exception. Hannah's man might still be alive. Diamond reluctantly takes the case. She dives into the mystery, surfacing in the middle of a scavenger hunt for Poe's raven. With Diamond's flair for the impossible, she works the elements to her advantage. But finding a secret and keeping it are two different animals, and fate isn't done with Diamond, forcing her to put it all on the line or risk setting a cage bird free. Suicide Squeeze is available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and upon request from your local bookseller. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own stories. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes, unless it's really bad and then he makes me start over. This is season two. This season contains adaptations from stories published in the 1800s. These stories are some of the first to be considered mysteries. For that reason, this season is called The Originators. Today's story is about outliers and separating the improbable from the impossible. This is episode one, The Thinking Man, an adaptation of The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. A cast of characters is provided in the show notes. story today was published in 1841 in Graham's magazine which was a Philadelphia magazine Edgar Allan Poe was the editor at the time his short story the murders in Rue Morgue appeared in the 18th edition he sent his story to Paris or he set his story in Paris what it was then modern time Paris was famous for well being Paris People lived in the area since the 3rd century BC. The original story referred to the uh, neighborhood around St. Roach Church, which at 296 Rue St. Honoro. What the heck is that? This What's is a weird sentence. the name of the street? It's really how it's spelled. Well, they should spell it better. It's French. 296 Rue St. Honoro in Paris. 75001, it sits at latitude, f- that number, okay, fine. <laughs> 45 40. degrees, 51 minutes, 54 seconds north. Longitude? 2 degrees, 19 minutes, 49 seconds east. About 435 kilometers away from Greenwich, London, in the UK, home to the Prime Meridian. It is a 5 hour and 15 minute drive between the two, which is the same amount of time it takes for me to get to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania from here, Fort Wayne, Indiana. The history of the church dates back to 1521. I'm not going to try and say that number because in this moment I will not say it right. When he began at a chapel dedicated, that's the word, to St. Susanna. Wait, what? Oh, 
The history of the church dates back to 1521, when he began as a chapel. Who is he? It's a typo, when it began as a chapel. Dedicated to St. Susanna. It was extended and expanded in 1653, and Louis the, oh my gosh, 14th laid a ceremonial first stone for the Church of St. Roch. Roach. I'm sure it's Roch. I'm sure we're butchering the French. I'm sure we are. Work stopped in 1660 and started again in 1701 and completed in 1754. None of this has anything to do with the fictional murder we are here and about to solve and trying to be doing. And yes, the but the too interesting. Oh, why? But it was too interesting not to include. In 1840, about the home oh, numbers again. 9,400 thousand people lived in Paris. Nine hundred and forty thousand people. I didn't say one hundred and forty thousand. <laughs> Nine hundred and forty thousand. I okay, said that you're right. right. You're right. right. That's legit. Today, two point one million people called Paris home. I don't know why they should call it Paris. It's what it's called. Paris is in the Central European time zone. This is one hour ahead of. We've already covered. Let's let's skip ahead. That's ah, boring. Other months increased up to... Oh, I have to read the one before that for that sentence to make sense. The summer months, historically, have rained about 10 days a month, and other months increased to 15 days. Doesn't sound like there's a risk of forest fire there. <sighs> Today's story doesn't give us a specific time of the year for the events. We know that the shutters of the house were kept closed, except for the top floor, where the windows were wide open. The night air was comfortable enough to have the windows open, but the day cool enough not to overheat the home. A guess on timing when that, what the heck is that sentence? A guess on timing then is late spring or early fall when the daytime reached 70 and nighttime lows are 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Wait, so I wasn't supposed to read any of that, darn it. I was right. I know you weren't supposed to read any of it, but we do this live, so you just did, so I'm reading your part. You stared at me. I was waiting. No, I'm reading this part. I was <laughs> proud. I wrote of it. In 1840, the French king was Louis-Philippe. Frederick Chopin had moved to Paris from Poland in 1831, and the famed pianist would stay there for another 18 years. At the time of the fictional Remord murders in 1841, Chopin had already played for the king and would again two years later. A famous Vienna... Oh. Violinist named, I'm not allowed to pronounce this correctly, um, Nizzolo Panini had Paganini. <laughs> Paganini has entered Paris only to lose a wager at a casino and go bankrupt. In the beginning of the 1830s, police counted 271 wandering street musicians and 135 street singers. Popular songs ranked from romantic ranged from romantic to comedy to satirical to political to revolutionary especially in the 1840s keep in mind that the 1848 french revolution was only eight years away so these were controversial times on the american side of the atlantic poe was living in boston having moved there from baltimore in 1835 by 1841, Ludwig van Beethoven had performed his symphony number no. one for the first time in Boston. Seemed appropriate for a symphony and number one. And for the first time in America. And this was kind of the beginning of, hey, Europeans, you're slightly accepted here now, despite the fact we kind of did kill a bunch of you and you killed a bunch of us in a war. Stop it. No? Just read the script. Read the uh, script. Fine. <sighs> In New Orleans, the Theater de la Renaissance opened, which being 1840 and Instagram not being a thing, Poe probably didn't know about. Tensions between the North and South were starting to show. It was still 20 years until President Lincoln would be elected and the Civil War would begin. Poe, however, would only live to see 1849 until his mysterious death in Baltimore. As far as why Poe the murders in Rue Morgue, he wrote to a friend in 1846 that stories about logic and reasoning were becoming popular. It seemed that he wrote the story to simply supply a demand. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. Now that he took my part, I get to talk a little bit. 
So we're nearly ready to begin our story. Jack needs to reset his microphone and he's getting his fingers warm up. I'll explain while we're doing adaptations of these early stories instead of performing them as written. Two main reasons. First, these stories are really cool, but the language from the 1800s is seriously hard. If we read these, the stories, they have more contacts or more con, they have more commas in them than a contract does. In reading them, I had to use a ruler to keep my place, and if, if we perform these for you the way they were written, well, no matter how catchy Jack's tunes are, we'd lose you all. The second reason is that the style and length of the stories weren't created for listening, they were created for reading. Some of the stories were from magazines, but others were written more like soap operas, evolving over a long period of time over many episodes, and doing that on a voiceover would just, it would be hours and hours. And so we're doing adaptations. Our goal is to keep the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative, but updating the packaging for easier digestion. If you'd like to read the original, you can find Edgar Allan Poe's The Murder in, Murders in the Rue Morgue at no cost at the Gutenberg Project. The link is in the show notes. So with that, we are ready for The Thinking Man. And Jack, that is officially your cue. We walked toward death. Our destination did nothing to damper the bright midday of the Paris afternoon. If anything, it added to it. Not the death itself, of course. Well, the deaths themselves. The insolvable deaths, the murder, the newspapers claimed. And so we were curious, me and Auguste Dupin. It was the intrigue that added to the day. As we walked to the house of unimaginable horrors, it occurred to me how many different ways humans can be smart, intelligent. We have the chess player whose head is filled with moves and counter moves. Intelligence there is rapidly dissecting the opponent's strategy and then making it your own. Then we have the artist who intuitively understands the nature of their media and can bend it to their will. There is genius in the musician who wields sound like a bullwhip, the same in the painter who evokes emotion with colors, and the same in the sculptor who derives form from the shapeless. My intellect, your narrator for the story, is in facts and information. Whatever I hear or read is mine forever, and I use the tool for my advancement, for argument, for entertainment. Written or spoken, words are my domain. Now my friend Dupin, well, he has a different kind of intelligence. He craves facts also, and that's how we met in a library, both reaching for an obscure title. The awkward meeting led to a memorable conversation, and day after day we met in the same library and became friends. His family had once been the cream of the Parisian crop. Through poor judgment or poor luck, I haven't quite figured out which, circumstances changed. When I met him, Dupin lived frugally on the remains of his family's fortune. He indulged in nothing except knowledge. When I needed a new place to live, I invited him to join me. Being both smart and humble, he accepted my offer. We developed our own odd way of life. By day, we pulled the curtains, closing out the world, and immersed ourselves in all the books 1840s Paris had to offer. By night, we explored the streets, putting into practice what we learned. I quickly became aware that Dupin's way of thinking was very different than my own. For him, information was the center of a web with connectors raiding out to other webs. His mind was the nimble spider racing through this network, moving from idea to idea, connecting the seemingly unrelated to come to the most amazing conclusions. Here's an example. One night, we walked, both lost in our thoughts. I remembered a play we recently saw, one that should have been better than it was, about Alexander the Great. There were several problems with the production, not the least of which was the lead actor. The man was poorly cast in the role. Agreed, Dupin said, to my unspoken thought. He was very short, not the picture one has of Alexander the Great. The Great, more like, Dupin, how? My face and voice displayed my shock. Dupin laughed at me. 
He doesn't have the big body laugh of a barman, not one to make unnecessary noise. His is a soft chuckle of amusement. Dupin, how did you know I was thinking of that little actor? It was impossible for him to know my thoughts. It was the Panini vendor, he said, whose name just happened to be Paganini, as though it explained everything. When I failed to respond, he reminded me of what happened only 15 minutes prior. As we stepped from the, our alley into a busier street, a baker hurried down the walk, pushing his cart. He misjudged the space and bumped me into the street. My ankle still smarted from where I had turned it. The memory had me rolling it again. I remember. It doesn't explain the Alexander the not-so-great. When you stepped into the street, Dupin said, it was onto a pile of stones for repairing the road. Your foot turned and you nearly fell. After that, your eyes stayed on the street with all of its potholes. It was only when we turned onto the next street that you relaxed. This street was paved with stones that connected into each other, creating a smooth walking surface. Your lips moved. Stereotomy. Talk about a word I don't know how to say. It wasn't long ago that we studied, hint, definition coming, stereotomy which was the technique of cutting solid objects into precise shapes. It's the technique used for creating stone arches. It's also the name of the ninth studio album for the Alan Parsons project, but that's totally a different story. We speculated how tall an arch could be made using those principles. You calculated a number that would let the man touch the stars. He laughed at me again in his quiet way. I knew you remembered because your eyes went to the night sky. Over us, Orion had risen. That distinct collection of stars visible anywhere in the world, which was named for the Greek hunter. One Greek would naturally take you to another, Alexander the Great. You shook your head as one does at the ridiculous. I added my agreement, interrupting your thoughts. There, you see, was the intellect of Dupin the nimble mind of a thinking man. We're nearly there, he said. Everything is in order. I have the letter granting us entry as we discussed. He patted his coat pocket, holding a letter from the prefect of police, that roughly is the chief of police for Paris. The letter ensured our entry into the house on Rue Morgue. A word on Rue Morgue. Rue is the French word for street, nothing terrifying there, but morgue is the French word for, well, a morgue. I couldn't find a count of how many roads in America are named cemetery, but it stands to reason that more than a few towns in each state use the landmark as the inspiration for the name. The morgue? Not so much. I found one, Morgue Fort Road in Kentucky, which runs near a creek called Morgue Fort. Likely there is a perfectly logical, non-homicidal reason for a creek to be named this, but for myself, having a healthy dose of superstition, I will not be dipping a big toe in it. And as for street names, many are picked for places we aspire to be, and so when it comes to street names, I will pass buying a house on one named morgue. But I digress. I put my hand in my own pocket. I have the newspaper accounts, I said, should we need to reference them. This crime is so heinous, though, I couldn't forget the facts if I tried. Very true, Dupin said, but we are in search of the facts that fill in the gaps. Gaps? I don't recall any gaps. The account fully detailed the events from the time the women began to scream until their bodies were found. What's missing? Dupin shrugged. I don't know. As described, the events are impossible. And as the events did happen, they are not impossible, which means something, or more than one somethings, are missing. When those somethings are found, everything will fall into place. Like the gears of a clock, the hands will come into alignment, and the bell will toll. What do we know? As I told you, the crime was truly horrific. Dupin and I had read and reread the accounts trying to make sense of the senseless, and the details were forevermore mine. It was three in the morning, I reminded him. The neighborhood around Rue Morgue was woken by shrieks of two women. Neighbors and a policeman hurried to the home of Mrs. Catalan and her daughter Camille. The pair lived alone in a large home. 
I remember, Dupin said. The house has four floors, but mother and daughter lived only on the top floor. That's right, I said. The front door had to be broken down. It took time. The screaming had stopped by the time the men entered. They raced in and voices were heard. They came from the upper floors and were described as rough and angry. The police and neighbors searched for the women. They found nothing until the top floor. The rooms at the front of the house were unlocked and unoccupied. They connected to the rooms at the back of the house, which was locked from the inside. Still having a crowbar used on the front door, one of the men broke in. Dupin nodded. The front door was closed and locked from the inside, as was the door to the apartment on the fourth floor. Correct, I said. According to the account, the rear garden door was also locked from the inside. There is not a second door to the apartment. Dupin stopped suddenly. His hand on my arm prevented me continuing. We are here. Before we go in, let's go around. I want to see everything. The house on Rue Morgue had a classic style with simple lines. Essentially, it was a rectangle standing tall on a property with more yard in back than in front. The flat lines of the home were broken by the windows placed at regular intervals to encourage a breeze to refresh stale air. Remember, this was long before the days of air conditioning. Although it was a newer home, the shutters were done in an older style, with the top section lattice and the bottom solid. On the lower floors, the shutters were closed. On the top floor, the shutters were open over the garden. A black fence surrounded the house with a gate in front. This was a quiet street in a neighborhood mixed with Parisians who grew up here and those who had just arrived. I pointed to the windows. The neighbors reported this was the way with the ladies. The only windows open were the ones at the top and rear of the house. The garden was paved in the old style of blocks that made my ankle throb. Dust collected to soil between the stones and were home to gangly vegetation planted by the wind. There were no chairs, no tables set out to enjoy an evening. A drainage pipe went down the center of the house, spilling out into the stones, and that spillage created a stain as though a line had been drawn with charcoal. There's nothing remarkable about the garden, with the exception that a woman died here. It is obvious where the body of Mrs. Catalan lay, Dupin said. Several yards from the house, the stones were stained. Showing myself to be a true Parisian, I could not look away. The account said her throat was cut, I told him. It was not only ear to ear, but so deep that when they lifted her body, her head rolled away. She was mutilated, her body barely recognizable as human. Dupin stared at the stones where blood had leached from the remnants of a woman. If I recall, he said, all the bones of her right leg and arm were shattered. Her left tibia was splintered, as were her ribs on that side. His eyes darted along the house to the rear door, around the perimeter of the small yard. Let's go inside. We completed the circle around the home and came to the front gate. I pushed and was surprised when it opened easily and without sound. Dupin knocked on the front door. He showed our documents to the policeman on duty, who allowed us to enter. He did not direct us or interfere, but he stayed with us. The murders happened less than three days ago, and everything remained in the house as it was, including the bodies. A suspect was in custody. Adolphe Lebon had worked as a clerk for Mrs. Catalan's bank. Three days before the murders, he accompanied Mrs. Catalan to her home, carrying her withdrawal from the bank in two large bags. His arrest sparked Dupin to involve us in this tragedy. Lebon had done something for Dupin in the past, something that had earned Dupin's gratitude. We began to explore. The first three floors were vacant. We looked in each apartment and found only undisturbed dust. There was no furniture, no signs that anything that lived on two legs had been in the rooms recently. We closed the doors, literally and figuratively, on the lower floors. We entered the top floor. Dupin paused to examine the door. The metal of the thin bar lock had yielded to the force from the outside, evidence to the accuracy of the testimony. I studied the room. There was no fake news in the newspaper account of the room being in the wildest disorder. The 
mattress was off the large bed and in the middle of the room, its bulk sagging over something solid beneath. The heavy bed frame itself was pushed askew and rested against the back wall, obstructing one of the two windows. The drawers of the dresser were pulled open, clothes laid about haphazardly as if grabbed by big greeting hands and then flung without care. A razor sat on the chair, both were bloodstained. Valuables were tossed like litter across the floor, earrings, ladies' pendants, silver spoons, gold. The room was more upside down than right side up. Dupin went to the fireplace that serviced the apartment. On the mantel laid a long rope of gray hair attached to a bloody mass. It was nasty to begin with, then made worse when Dupin put his nose within a scant inch of it. From his position, he could examine every fiber if he liked. When he stepped back, his gaze swept to the floor. The soot that caught the attention of the neighbors, he said, it's been tracked everywhere. He squatted down then and looked in the hearth, looking up the chimney. I imitated him. Miss Catalan was found in here, stuffed in feet first. Reportedly, it took five men to pull her out. She was still warm. Her face had deep scratches and her throat was bruised. Deep indents of fingernails were noted. Hmm, Dupin said, still staring up the flue. This was not the way in. No, I agreed. The police had the chimney swept. The opening couldn't accommodate anything larger than a cat. Certainly not a man. Dupin nodded. Going from the chimney to the younger woman, her face was horribly discolored. Her eyes, still open, bulged. He lifted her bedclothes to examine her torso. A large bruise covered the pit of her stomach, as if she was knelt on. He shifted his attention to her mother. His deaf fingers examined the arms and legs and the broken bones within. Her entire body was battered and bruised. The police have asserted that any large heavy object, they told him, could have created the damage here. Dupin nodded. A wood club, an iron bar, a chair even. The wielder had to be strong, strong enough to rule out a woman as a killer. He stood then, his gaze sweeping the room for a weapon. Pay attention, he told me. Look at everything. Assume nothing. We separated. As directed, I looked everywhere. The lump under the mattress was a small strong box. It was open with papers both inside and under the mattress. These were a mix of personal letters and documents, including the title to the house. A sound of exertion pulled my attention away. A few feet from me, Dupin struggled with the window. He strained against the one easily accessed. It did not open, and he did not give up. I returned to the floor, picking up a gold coin. It was a cool, solid weight in my hand. How many were scattered across the floor? Twenty? Thirty? Intermixed were earrings of good quality, and a pin that, to my uneducated eye, would be worth as much as a month of expenses. At a satisfied exhale, I glanced up again. Dupin looked proud of himself. The window was open. I left the trinkets where they were and turned to the bigger question. Why would someone murder two women like this? A Mr. Catalan, perhaps? How had he entered? I inspected each door, testing the locks, working to open them from the outside. My conclusion, they could only be opened from the inside. I rejoined Dupin, both of us finished with the top floor. We returned to the ground floor and again satisfied ourselves that, once locked, the house could not be entered. There's no damage to the door, no signs it was forced in any way. We used it ourselves to enter the garden. Upon close re-examination, we saw that what we saw from the other side. The stained stones where Mrs. Catiline was found was some distance from the house. Dupin covered the area between the stains and the structure, picking at the vegetation determined to grow. When everything visible and invisible had been examined, the police saw us to the front door. We had entered the house around three in the afternoon. When the door closed behind us, the sun had set. Our return home was not in silence. At Dupin's request, I recounted the testimony of the witnesses. Mother and daughter were loving toward each other, I told him, according to their laundry woman. She worked for them for three years, and they were good customers, cordial. She did not know where their money came from, only that they paid well. Probably the elder woman told fortunes. 
possibly they lived off savings. In her time with them, she saw no others in the house, not a servant, not a guest. The tobaccoist said similar, I continued. He was born and raised in the neighborhood. The mother owned the house. She and the daughter had lived there more than six years. She previously had tenants, but didn't like the way they kept her house. She kicked them out and didn't rent the rooms again. He rarely saw the daughter. He sold tobacco and snuff regularly to the mother. He rarely saw people coming or going from the house. When he did, it was the occasional porter or physician. Hmm, Dupin murmured. One thing is for certain, mother and daughter did not do that to each other. What else do we know? Three days before her death, I said, Mrs. Catalan visited her banker, Michelle and Sons. Mr. Michelle said Mrs. Catalan had opened her account some eight years prior. She frequently visited to make small deposits. She rarely withdrew money, but on that visit, she withdrew 4,000 francs. The francs were paid in gold. Adolf Lebon, the man charged with the murders, accompanied Mrs. Catalan from the bank to her home, carrying the gold in two bags. He didn't enter the house, according to him, but handed one of the bags to Mrs. Catalan and the other to her daughter at the door. He left the house and did not return. Now, it's hard to say how much money that was. I couldn't find any documentation that showed in simple terms how much a loaf of bread cost or the price of a home. I found one academic paper that suggests that skilled tradesmen earned between 12 and 40 francs a day, with most paid less than 30, assuming I read it correctly. To keep things moving, let's assume I did. So 4,000 francs would be about a year's income. I did find that in that time, most people prefer gold or land to paper money, so Mrs. Catalan having the money in gold was not unusual. Dupin made a rude sound. I guess he doesn't like my sidebars. The murders occurred in the middle of the night, he said. Yes, near three in the morning, I said. Many people responded to the women shrieking. Teddy Demuse was on patrol. Finding 20 or so men outside the house and hearing the screeching himself, he took charge and led the entry. He forced the front door using a bayonet, not a crowbar as some accounts read. The shrieking, which had been long and drawn out, screams of somebody in agony, well, they had stopped abruptly. Demuse led the charge up the stairs. Two voices were heard then. One was gruff and the other was shrill, very unusual. The gruff voice was that of a Frenchman. He was certain it was not a woman's voice. He caught a few words, damn, devil. The other was a voice of a foreigner. He couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman, but he believed they spoke Spanish. Not speaking Spanish, Demuse did not understand what was said. Henry Duval was a silversmith and one of the many neighbors who came to help. He was right behind Demuse. Once Demuse opened the door, Duval and four others entered and then barred the door to keep the crowd out. His account matched Demuse on the screaming and the condition of the house. There were no differences, Dupin asked. One, I answered, the shrill voice. Duval thought it was Italian, not Spanish, because of the intonation. He agreed it was definitely not French and not that of either woman. Duval doesn't speak Italian, and so he didn't understand what was said. Dutch Markin, a restauranteur from Amsterdam, was the third to enter the house. He doesn't speak French and was interviewed through an interpreter. He was passing the home at the time the screaming started and he responded. He verified the accounts of Demuse and Duval, but Markin thought the shrill voice was a Frenchman. The words were loud and quick, but unbalanced. He believed they were spoken in anger. To him, shrill was not accurate. He preferred harsh. The other voice, the gruff one, said, damn and hell and my God. The fourth man was William Byrd, an Englishman who's lived in Paris for two years. As with the other, the events were described the same. The gruff voice, he agreed, was a Frenchman. The other, he understood only damn and my God. Bird claims he heard a struggle, a scraping or chafing sound. Then he heard the other voice. It was loud and it was angry. It was not English or French, but it may have been German. It may have been a woman's voice. I paused here, providing my friend the time for his little spiders to weave their webs. Dupin slowed us to a stop and looked at me. Two other men entered, correct? 
Yes, I said, resuming our trek home. Alfonso Garcio is an undertaker and originally from Spain. He entered the home but did not climb the stairs, staying on the lower level. He too agrees the gruff voice was a Frenchman. To his ear, the shrill voice was English. He does not speak English, but he said the tone and rhythm were certainly English. The last man, Alberto Montani, is an Italian candy maker. He climbed the stairs with Demuse Duval and Bird. Montani said the gruff voice seemed to be expostulating, which means expressing strong disapproval or disagreement. The other voice, he also said, spoke quickly and unevenly. He thought it was Russian, but no, he doesn't speak Russian. Dupin grunted, of course. Tell me, my friend, is there agreement on the time, the screams and agony, the entry into the house? What about once they were on the fourth floor? All men agreed that all was silent when they reached the fourth floor. The room where Miss Catalan was found was locked. Demuse again forced the door. No one was inside. The windows of the room were locked, the sash pins in place. The door between the two bedrooms was closed but not locked. The door leading to the front of the house was locked with the key in the lock from the bedroom side. A small storage room in the front of the house was open and ajar. It contained only old beds and boxes, nothing more. The men carefully searched the entire floor. Nothing was left untouched. A trap door was found to the roof. It was now closed and looked as though it hadn't been opened for years. There was no back passage from the top floor to the lower floors. Was an estimate of time given from beginning to end? To an extent, I said. The time between hearing the gruff and shrill voices arguing and the men ascending the fourth floor rooms was between three and five minutes. The locks slowed their progress. It would, he said, yes. A moment. Without further explanation, Dupin stepped into a storefront of the world, a local newspaper. I didn't follow him, needing the refreshment of the evening air. I would forever be visiting the house on Rue Morgue, even if I never go there again. A newspaper under his arm, we were on our way again, and walked the rest of the way to our home in companionable silence. My own mind sought to rationalize what was done to Miss and Mrs. Catalan. Not to forgive it or to reason it away, but to put logic to it. It was an impossible situation from beginning to end. Dupin, he wouldn't talk about it. Like I told you, he's a quiet man and often retreats into his own mind. This was one of those times. He didn't speak of the murders or anything else, really, until noon the next day. Did you observe anything peculiar at the murder scene? Peculiar? Everything I observed was peculiar. Just as peculiar was the question and the tone at which it was asked. I suppose not, I said cautiously. Everything was as described in the paper. He waved his hand dismissively. The newspaper never entered the scene. Trust your eyes over the written word. This mystery is considered unsolvable. The things that lead to that opinion are the same things that make the solution easy. I goggled at him, choking on his ridiculousness. Easy? Explain how it was easy for the murderer to enter a locked room and escape with six men running up the stairs and another twenty standing outside the front door. Explain the motives behind not just killing the women, but abusing them as they were. Dupin nodded, unperturbed by my emotion. Everyone, police included, have fallen into the common mistake of confusing the unusual with the abstruse, which means the difficult to comprehend. Separating the two paths leads to a solution. His spiders were at work. All right, we're at the pinnacle of the story. So now we know everything that the narrator knows, and Dupin is about to start the wrap-up. So let's talk about it, and you can log in your suspect. In the introduction, I said that the story was about outliers and separating the improbable from the impossible. Outliers are those things that lie outside the normal range. And so, what things in this story are outside normal? Jack, what did you find that's outside normal? Um, the fact that the dude got in? I agree, the fact that the dude got in. I think you need to swing your microphone back to you. 
I feel like I'm in class and you just called on me and I was not at all paying attention to what we were reading. <laughs> but we said we were going to do this. Were you not paying attention in class? <laughs> we originally named this section Questions Your English Teacher Wouldn't Ask. And now we're calling it Sections Your English Teacher Asked You While You Were Daydreaming About What Next Tune You're Gonna Play. So when I read this story, one of the questions that I wanted to know, which has pretty much nothing to do with anything except it's the way I think, is what were these ladies doing up at three in the morning? And like, why did they have a whole year's worth of money? Like, what were they planning to do? Run away to the States? Buy another house somewhere in Paris? Maybe that'll be explained once you find out how they died. We know how they died. One was thrown out the window with her throat slit so Once hard. Once we know thumb. why they died. Wait, she was thrown out the window with her throat already slit? Yeah. Dude, I have not been paying attention. <laughs> Poe was so graphically gross here that her throat was cut with a razor blade, pretty much ear to ear. And when they lifted her body off of the ground, the head rolled away. I knew that part. I didn't know she was thrown out of the window. I thought she was in the yard thing when she was slissed. Well, how did she get in the yard if she didn't go out the window? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose know. the guy could have carried her body down, gently laid her on the ground, and then walked back in and locked all the doors from the inside. I'm just wondering, if the head rolled off... When they picked her up, how did the head stay on getting thrown out the window? That is such a good question. I didn't think of that. Yeah. How did it stay on? You think there was like a lot of barf stains around the uh, the garden as oh, the head rolled okay. away? We are going to um move on from this segment now. <laughs> all right. All right, dear listeners. We will give those of you who don't know the answer to the murders in the Rue Morgue a minute or two to name your suspect. It doesn't have to be a person's name. It can be a thing like the neighbor, the neighbor's dog, the milkman, the guy who they arrested. We'll let Jack warm his fingers back up and then we'll get into who done it. You see, the problem I'm having is that I totally just want to give you the exact hint. That's the answer. So like, I shouldn't have the mic at the moment. So bye. <laughs> bye. for a caller, Dupin said, who likely did not commit these atrocities, but who has first-hand knowledge. He may not come, but I think he will. Here, take a pistol and keep it hidden. We do not want to scare him off. We need to detain him. I took the pistol, totally confused. Why would this man, who is not the killer, come to us? I asked. I invited him, Dupin said, with the advertisement I placed in the newspaper last night. Truly, Dupin, that only adds to my confusion. Do you know who the murderer is? In a matter of speaking, he said, tell me, we agree on the following points. Mother and daughter were incapable of inflicting the wounds they received on each other, which means another committed the murders. I am in absolute agreement with that, I said. There was more than one murderer, as the men who responded heard two voices neither of which belonged to the victims. Very good, Dupin said with a satisfied smile. About the voices, specifically, did you notice anything peculiar? Again, with the peculiar. All agreed the gruff voice was French, was a Frenchman, I said. There was no agreement on the nationality of the shrill voice. Exactly, Dupin said. That, my friend, is the peculiarity a Frenchman, an Italian, a Spaniard, an Englishman, and a Hollander all attempt to describe a voice. They all describe it as foreign. They all testified it's not their language, and they each ascribe it to a language they 
did not speak. Think about it. The voice had to be very unusual to have representatives from the major languages of Europe and not find anything in common. Paris does not have many Asians or Africans, but should the voice have been speaking one of those languages, descriptions would have matched. They should have, but they didn't. The voice was described as harsh, shrill, and being quick and uneven. No words were identified as distinguishable by any of the witnesses. None. None, I repeated, thinking over the testimony. That is peculiar. I startled, surprised at my own word choice. Then what? Let's start with the room, Depend said. The windows and doors were locked. The room should have been impenetrable. It should have been, I agreed. If it was, then perhaps... Then perhaps the women let the murderers in themselves. They opened a door to a man in distress. Yes, I was stretching, but I was finding reason that would meet the facts. Dupin snorted. You are thinking like the police. He did not mean it as a compliment. The two women hadn't been seen with the guests in six years, but this night they let one in, wearing their night clothes. The women shared the bed. No other room had been used. They let a man, two men, into their bedroom. No, they did not let the killer in. But you are not completely wrong. We both accept that the women were not killed by spirits. The killer had entered the room. After our search, I was satisfied that the house had no hidden passages, no hidden corridors. All the doors were locked, the walls were solid, the chimney was too small for a man, and that leaves only one thing, the windows. The windows were locked, I remind him. Okay, before we get into what is a bit of a description of windows, we have to take everyone back to 1840 window technology. The frame that the window sat in had pulleys at the top. On both sides of the actual window, a, a thick rope was fastened that went over the pulley, and this was connected to a counterweight that was concealed within the frame. With the weight of the window balanced with the counterweights, it's very easy to make a window go up and down. We had one in our old house back in Cleveland, which was built in 1920. They were very easy to open from the inside or the outside, and they did very little to keep one around. To prevent people who were, literally, on the outside from opening the windows up, thick pins slid into the frame and prevented the windows from lifting. I've included some images on our website. These may not be identical to the ones in the house on the Rue Morgue, but you'll get the picture. So now let's go back to the windows. Dupin shook his head. The windows appeared to be locked. I first examined the window with easy access. The window was worked by a sash and a spring. The spring had to be disengaged to open the window and was re-engaged upon closing. The window also had a small hole into which a fit a thick nail. With the nail in place, the window would not open. In my opinion, the window would have broken before it lifted. The other window was partially blocked by the bed frame that was shoved against it. Climbing onto the frame, I examined the window, expecting it to be the twin of the other. It wasn't, I asked. Dupin smiled. The nail was recessed into the hole and appeared identical, but when I pried it out to examine, it, the, spring, to examine the spring and stash, the nail had fell into my hand. It was not attached to the shaft. With no effort, the window lifted. Once the window was sufficiently closed, well then the spring re-engaged and the window appeared locked when it was actually only closed. And so a solution presented itself. The killers entered through the open window and left by the same. After passing through, the window either closed under its own weight or the killer closed it enough to engage the spring. I had examined the windows but not to the same extent as Dupin. I accepted what he said. Then how did they get to the ground? The window is four floors above with no balcony or porch. Dupin nodded. Remember, on the back of the house, the storm drain ran between the windows. This was no more than five feet from the window casement, but with the shutter open, the distance would have been more like two feet. If you remember, the shutter was elaborate, Leonese and Bordeaux style. Yes, I said, the top was lattice, and it would provide an easy handhold. I could see the picture he painted, sure, but... D 
Dupin, it would take extraordinary dexterity to climb from the drain pipe, cross to an open window using a shutter, and then bridge the distance. Exactly, he said. It would take agility bordering on supernatural. I lowered my head, nearly growling at him. I thought we agreed spirits did not kill those women. Completely. You are satisfied that our villains entered and exited through the window, though, right? The window behind the bed. Yes, I said, as you say. Perhaps an argument, admittedly weak, I said before he could argue with me, could be made for a, a different means of entrance, but the window is the only logical explanation for the exit. Any other way, and Demuse and the others would have caught the fiends. Exactly, Dupin said. Let's look at motive now. The police are floundering here. Their bureau drawers were tossed by the killers. Some clothes remained in while others were thrown about. This is a silly assertion. There is no way to know the original state of the dresser. These women lived a quiet, isolated life. They weren't fancy women changing clothes three times a day. The clothing we found matched their lifestyle. It's silly to think our culprit rooted through the drawers for the high-quality garments only to take those and leave the rest. Why take it at all? And if taking one, why not take them all? No. The idea becomes even more ridiculous when confronted with the fact that 4,000 francs in gold remained in the room. Police counted the bags plus the coins on the floor. Nearly all were accounted for. Take the underwear and leave the gold? No, never. Agree, I said. I found it odd that the gold as well as the jewelry remained behind. I suppose it's not impossible that the women had other items of value, but, to your point, if taking those, you would certainly take the gold. Dupin was becoming as excited as, well, he ever is. You see how it's coming together? The peculiar voice, the supernatural agility, the complete absence of motive, not to mention the brute strength required to shove a woman up a chimney with such force that it took five men to pull her back down. I shuddered, despite the comfortable temperature. While it may not have been a spirit, I said, I'm getting the unsettling feeling that it was a monster who killed those women. Remember the hearth. There was a thick plug of gray curls, he said. The hair had been pulled from Mrs. Catalan by the roots. Her throat had not just been cut, it had been severed. The sheer brutality of it was remarkable. I remember, I said, no need for detail. I pressed my hand to my stomach. Do not forget the bruising and broken bones. Ah, he said, but we should forget the broken bones. There's no mystery there. The obtuse object the police sought was the stone she landed on. Now the strength it took to throw her out the window, especially such a distance from the house, that, my friend, is spectacular. I moved past my disgust, again fascinated with the way Dupin saw the world. How does all this come together? The chaos in the room, the agility, the strength, the lack of interest in anything valuable? Is it a madman? A raving maniac who escaped from a mental institution? There's not one too far away, you know. Possible, right? Dupin said. Except a raving maniac would speak a recognized language. The order of the words may create nonsense, but the words themselves would be recognized. So no, not a raving maniac. From a small tin, he produced several hairs. What do you make of these? They were stiff and felt more like horsehair than human. They were too short for any modern man, too long for a horse. The color was unique, a deep orange that I'd seen in nature, but not on an animal, human or otherwise. It isn't human, I speculated tentatively. He pulled a drawing from his desk. Look at this sketch. I traced it from the marks on Miss Catalan's throat. Fit your hand to it. I did, and I failed. My hand simply could not spread as this one did. A throat is round, he said. Here, wrap it around this log. It is roughly the size of a throat. He wrapped the paper around wood. Again, I attempted to make my hand fit, and again, I failed. I have met bigger men than me, but not so much as this drawing implied. My speculation firmed. This hand isn't human. Dupin grinned, but did not reply. Instead, he pointed me to a passage in a book written by Cuvier. It was an anatomical and general description of an animal found in the East Indian Islands. I began to read. The orangutan, 
I love the spelling here, has a gigantic structure compared to man with incredible strength and agility. They display an amazing talent to imitate others. Their nature can change quickly from docile to widely to wild ferocity. The pages included a handprint of the animal, which was identical in size and position due to Ben's drawing. I understand your point, I said, and yes, it satisfies some parameters, but to Penn, two voices were heard, and one certainly was a Frenchman. Yes, a Frenchman was in proximity, he said. It was he who exclaimed, damn, and my God, it is he I invited here with my ad. Dupin selected another sheet from his desk. I huffed my displeasure at his secrets, but then read, caught early the morning of the morning of the murders, a very large, tawny, Bornese orangutan. The sailor slash owner from the Maltese vessel may claim the animal by satisfactorily identifying it and paying charges arising from its capture and board. I looked from the paper to my friend. What have you done, Dupin? He smiled. As I said, invited the Frenchman to meet us. But how do you know he's a sailor, and how do you know his vessel is Maltese? Dupin looked abashed for the first time. Admittedly, I do not know. I am not sure. But the ribbon I found on the ground near the drain was the type commonly used for hair. Sailors are fond of wearing theirs long. The knot was not a common knot, but one particular to Malta. Maybe I shouldn't have put that in the ad. It was frivolous. I hope if I am wrong that our man will overlook the error. Dupin began to pace. If I were him, as rare and valuable as the creature is, I would want it back. Our home here is quite a distance from Rue Morgue. He would have no reason to be afraid that we would make the connection. If I were him, I would come. I left the front door open as an invitation. I rolled my eyes, about to scold my housemate when I heard footsteps climbing our stairs. Be ready, Dupin said. Don't do anything until I signal. The steps stopped, hesitated, then retreated. Dupin was about to give chase when they began climbing again. A knock came at our door. Dupin raced to his chair, standing as though he'd just risen. Come in, he said cheerfully. The door opened and a sailor joined us. He was tall, stout, well-muscled. His hair was long and tied back. Half his face was hidden beneath a mustache and beard. The other half was permanently sunburnt. He wore a daredevil attitude as certainly as he wore his clothes. He carried a huge wood club. His bow was rusty, as was his French but it was distinctively Parisian. Good evening. Please sit, my friend. Dupin indicated our couch and sit, sank back into his chair. I stood near a bookcase, ready to intervene in his defense or to intercept at the door. Thank you. The sailor moved with long, certain strides to join Dupin. You came about the orangutan. He is a magnificent animal, Dupin said. I envy you having him. How old is he? The sailor relaxed, his stiff form folding until his elbows rested on his knees. I don't know for certain. He can't be more than four or five. Is he here? No, Dupin said, smiling softly. We don't have the facilities to keep him here. He's at a nearby stable. You can get him in the morning. Can you identify him? I can, Dupin frowned, playing his part very well. I'm sorry to part with him. He's an incredible find. I'll pay you for your trouble, the sailor said. A reward for finding and returning him. Anything within reason, of course. Let me think. Dupin brought his hand to his mouth, pulling his lips in in contemplation. Oh, I know. My reward shall be you giving me the information on the murders in the room morgue. His voice dropped with these last words, his eyes flashing to me. Subtly, I drifted to the door and locked it. I drew my pistol. Dupin did the same. The sailor flushed and began breathing heavily. He pushed to his feet, bringing the club to his shoulder. Then, just as abruptly, he fell back onto our couch. Dupin looked at me and I did him. The sailor trembled violently and in great distress and he didn't make a sound. My friend, Dupin said softly, we aren't going to hurt you, truly. We know you are innocent of the murders. Blood is not on your hands. It would be foolish for you to argue that you are not implicated, though. You have done nothing that could have been avoided, nothing that renders you a criminal. You didn't even steal when it would have been easy. 
You are a good man and have nothing to hide. Truly, you have no reason to hide, but you are honor-bound to confess what you know. An equally good man is imprisoned, innocent, yet charged with the crime in which you can point to the true perpetrator. His speech had the desired effect. Soon the sailor was capable of speaking again. I'll tell you, but God help me, I don't believe you to be expect you to believe it. He chuckled, the sound teetering on the edge of hysteria. There are times when I don't believe it. My friend and I captured the orangutan on a voyage to Borneo. My friend died on the return voyage and I was left alone with our prize. I kept him here in Paris, in my own home, in a closet so my neighbors wouldn't see him. I'm looking for a buyer. I'll use the money to buy a farm of my own, to find a wife. He continued. I came home that night and found the orangutan in my room. He had lathered his face and, razor in hand, was attempting to shave. He's monstrously strong and there he was with my straight blade in his hand. I used a whip to control him. It always worked no matter his mood. I picked up the whip, intending to separate the animal from the razor. To my surprise, I hadn't closed the door behind me. He saw the whip and he sprang past me out of my room. I chased him down the stairs. The door at the bottom was closed but a window was open. I followed him through the streets, and he carried the razor. He knew I followed, and he wouldn't let me close. The streets were so quiet. Thankfully, no one was around. He went into a dark alley. A light in a window attracted his attention. Quickly, he was over the fence, and he climbed a pipe as if it were a ladder. I watched as he swung from the pipe to a shutter and in an open window. It occurred to me that this was good. He was contained, and I knew where he was. I climbed the fence and then the drain as he did. I couldn't make the leap, but I could see. His body trembled, his voice cracked. The eyes of this world-traveled sailor became wet. Oh God, I could see. The women must have been sitting on the floor, he said. When I leaned across, they realized that he was in the room. They screamed. One woman fainted. He grabbed the other one by her hair and he was holding the razor, flicking his wrist as I do when I shave. The woman screamed and the orangutan became crazed. One cut and her head was nearly severed. It tipped back unnaturally as blood, he inhaled deeply. The sight of the blood further incited him. He leapt upon the other woman, crushing her throat as he tore at her body. He saw me then. He knew, by God, he knew what he did. He began tearing around the room, throwing anything and everything in his path. He broke furniture as if it was a child's toy. He tossed the bed, a bed it likely took four men to bring up to the room. There was nothing more to destroy. Then he went to the younger woman. He hefted her as though she were a doll. He looked about and then settled on the hearth. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. One mo moment she was there and the next she was gone. Then he went to the older woman and carried her toward me. I slid down the pipe, tearing the skin from my hand. He held out his palms as evidence, and they were swollen, rife with scabs, littered with blisters. The woman landed in front of me, he said. There was nothing I could do. He dropped his head in his hands. There was nothing I could do. You went home, Dupin said. Sailor nodded, running his fingers through his hair. I did, but I did not give up searching for him. I am grateful to you for capturing him. I'm sorry, my friend, but he is still at large. In the search for the truth, Dupin said, I was forced to lie. The sailor's shoulders sagged the weight again upon them. What are you going to do, he asked. Talk to the prefect of police, Dupin said, and secure the release of an innocent man. What about you? continue my search. The sailor rose then. At Dupin's nod, I unlocked the door. The sailor walked out of our home without another word. In a short time, an unsigned note arrived indicating he'd captured the animal. There was no mention of what he would do next. I accompanied Dupin to the office of the prefect of police. Dupin told the story with some commentary on incorrect conclusions made. The police made equally sar sarcastic comments about private persons minding their own business. Importantly, Le Bon was released immediately. Dupin was not put off by the police attitude. Let them talk, he said. It will make them feel better that I beat them at their own game. They failed to solve this mystery when all of Paris was watching. I like the prefect. He has a reputation for ingenuity, a trait I admire. So let them talk. While they talk, I'll do what I prefer.
I'll think. An orangutan, really? I don't know about you, but I'm somewhat dissatisfied with that killer. I feel like I was cheated, like it should have been a sailor or a human. I know, who am I to judge Poe? But I am a, a mystery fan and I love solving the mysteries. Let me know what your thoughts are in the show notes. I know, you can defend Poe, you can tell me I'm crazy, or you can say, yeah, what is it, an orangutan? Either way, that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Thank you for listening. Support our show by telling a mystery lover about us and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf and Jack Wolf. The Thinking Man was written by T.G. Wolf, adapted from Edgar Allan Poe's The Murders in the Rue Morgue. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Join us in two weeks for Desperate Times, an adaptation of The Sambalist and the Detective by Alan Pinkerton. Until then, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs>